The Foundation for Ancient Research and Mormon Studies presents the Pearl of Great Price Lecture Series, given by Dr. Hugh Nibley. Today's lecture is entitled, The Combat. Now we have got to the 12th verse following of Moses, first chapter of Moses in the 12th verse. We'll pass after this. And what we have here, see, after the, uh, we find Moses flat, helpless, and this is the time we see that Satan chooses to attack him. And the result is a stichomythia. Now we're going to get into combat. See, in all your ancient, we know now throughout the entire world in ancient times from the very beginning, the year right, the renewal of the world was the, and we'll see this is the renewal of the world, there was the combat to the powers of darkness, and the king overcame and was crowned for another cycle, proving by his victory that he was worthy to, uh, to rule. He had overcome the powers of death and darkness. Well, there's a great deal on that. I've always thought more on that than anything else, I guess. But here we come to the combat, of course, it's between Moses and Satan. And Moses came, uh, Satan came tempting him, saying, Moses, worship me. Moses must be tempted. Remember, that, that was the understanding here. And so, from 12 on, we have the, the sticko... Oh, 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 spell it like that. The Y comes later. It's terrible to do things like that. Asticos is the word, Latin for, ver uh, Greek word for verse, and mythia is the throwing back and forth of rival speeches and verses. See, before a contest, before a, before a, uh, a duel between the heroes or the kings, there is a long preliminary exchange of insults that goes on. And this is a regular part of heroic literature. It's part of the epic milieu. It belongs to barbaric ages. And uh, surprising as it is, well, a typical example, I just remember this morning, uh, when I was 10 years old, I remember I memorized a sycamore from Walter Scott, terrible poetry. Uh, so we'll skip it. But the amazing thing is that the stichomythia has been revived in our own day. You see it, and it is barbaric, it is savage, and it is depraved as far as that goes, <coughs> namely in the wrestling business. Half the battle are the insults, they swing at each other. No, you recount why you were fighting, why, how badly you were injured, how you were, how you were cheated on the last bout and so forth, and what you're going to do to the guy this time and so forth. Well, that's the stichomythia. They change it, they take up half the time uh, swapping these insults and challenges and grinding their teeth. And they do it in, a, in an artificial, phony voice, as you know. Everybody has to growl most savagely as far as that goes. That's the stichomythia. Uh, that's a, a very important part of ancient drama is the stichomythia. There's a lot of it in Shakespeare's uh, King plays. Henry IV, the first part of Henry IV, opens with the stichomythia. So here we are. Moses looked upon Satan and said, Notice Satan speaks first. Moses, son of man, worship me. He's going to be the king. See, it's the contest for who shall be king, and it turns out that Moses is to be king. Uh, you think between, between uh, Moses and Satan here, not between God and Satan. God never fights Satan at any time. I mean, all he has to do is snap his finger. That takes care of Satan. He has only the power that he's allowed to have. Well, Moses looked on Satan, and now he gives him the cold shoulder. He, he gives Satan a very bad time here, but you'll see what Satan does to him. Behold, I am a son of God in the similitude of the only gotten. Where is thy glory that I should worship thee? He sees no glory here. And why should I worship you? He's a fake. No, glory cannot be faked. Um, 
It's a very interesting thing. You see, we try to do that, special effects and so forth. They always fall flat. They're always disappointing. Uh, it's better not to try that, to try to imitate the heaven of glory, glory of heaven, whether it's in a Sistine Chapel or, or anywhere else. It just won't work. But uh, he says, where is your glory if I should worship thee? Now, I could look upon God. Now, he rubs it in. <coughs> he really gets to the point here. I could not look upon God except his glory should be upon me, and I was strengthened before him, but I can look upon you just like a man. And then he taunts him, is it not so surely? <laughs> Asking for a reply. Blessed be the name of my God, for his spirit hath not altogether withdrawn. See, Moses is down on the earth now. He's flat, he's out cold and so forth. He's in a dismal state, but he still trains clouds of glory. You still have the intimations of immortality. You still have the anamnesis that Plato talks about. The memory you cannot banish. The fact that you there was a former glory. You can't remember what it was, but you remember that there was such a thing. And he says, his spirit hath not altogether withdrawn from me. And that's why I can tell the difference. Or else, where is thy glory? For it is darkness to me. Imitation glory is darkness. It's sad. The glory of a merry-go-round or, or the glory of uh, Las Vegas. All that light, all that neon glitter and so forth. Is that your idea of glory? It's not very glorious. It's the very opposite. It's very sad, isn't it? I can judge between thee and God. God said unto me, worship God. For him only shalt thou worship. Um, so he couldn't be fooled. And so he then rebukes Satan, tries to cast him out. It doesn't work. Like when the apostles tried to cast him out and failed to do so. This one comes not out, says the Lord, save with fasting and prayer. So he says, Satan, deceive me not. It won't work. For God said unto me, thou art after the similitude of mine only begotten. And this was the claim, of course, that Satan was making against him. Also, he gave me commands, and he called unto me out of the burning wish, call upon God in the name of the only begotten, worship me. Here we have the first mention of it, see. Call upon God in the name of the Son forevermore. And again, Moses said, I will not cease to call upon God. Now, like Adam, like Moses, notice they follow the same formula. Adam seeking ever greater light and knowledge. Abraham, in the second verse of the book of Abraham, as he opens there, he says, as one who sought for light and knowledge and for greater light and knowledge, he wants more and more. And he says, I have more and I haven't finished my dealings with the Lord, and I have nothing to, to expect from you. I have other things to inquire of him. Hadn't seen For his glory has been upon me, wherefore I can judge between him and thee. Depart hence, Satan. So he, he tries to cast him out here. But Satan counterattacks now. That would, wouldn't be a stichomathia, it wouldn't be a contest without going back and forth. When Moses said these words, Satan decides a frontal attack. He sees his bruises no good. He tries to impress Moses. He's failed to impress Moses. So now, now he casts off, off the mask and gets nasty. He's going to make a direct frontal attack. You won't do that unless uh, you've seen through his ruses. Otherwise, he works by trickery, and he's a sly gentleman. As, as uh, Joseph Smith says, he's, he's very much a gentleman, and, uh, and uh, he was a liar from the beginning and a great deceiver. He's very experienced. He doesn't, doesn't often have to use the direct approach, but he uses it here, and it's too much for Moses. Satan cried with a loud voice and rent upon the earth and commanded, saying, him, as a four-star titty, he's not showing very great dignity or anything else. He loses his self-control. He cries, screams, and tears on the earth and says, I am the only begotten. Worship me. You'd think Moses wouldn't fall for anything as obvious as that. But he's a terrible figure. And we see in the, in the Apocalypse of Abraham, Ascension of Abraham, uh, it's the Apocalypse of Abraham, excuse me, the same thing happens with Abraham when the Satan comes and, and Michael appears and says, don't argue with him because he's more, he's more clever than you are. He has a powerful mind. He'll trick you every time. Let me dismiss him. And then Michael casts him out when Abraham is sacrificing. Well, 
Then Moses is terrified. He's petrified, he loses, he collapses now, and he'll be completely lost if it wasn't for something. He began to fear exceedingly. Ah, he's already giving way. That's lack of faith, you see. As soon as you lack faith, then you're already down. And when he began to fear, he saw the bitterness of hell. He went right down to the bitterness of hell. That's the sort of thing you have with, uh, with schizophrenia and so forth. This utter terror, which is the worst hell you can possibly have, worse than any physical suffering, uh, suffering you could go through. But with his last ounce of strength, he makes an effort, calls upon God, and receives strength so that he can get more in, in return. So he's down and he's out, and he, he goes down to hell now. He cries out of the depths. This is the De Profundis. Now, uh, let's see now. That's the 130th Psalm, isn't it? Uh, oh, I didn't bring it with me. But isn't that the famous one, you know? The king, when he's, the, the Psalms are the royal hymns, many of them, for the coronation and the rivalry, and have to do with the contest. Why do the Gentiles rage and so forth? And there's all the fighting that goes on and so forth. And out of the depths I call unto thee, Lord, the De Profundis. The king is down, he is out, he calls unto the Lord, and the Lord rescues him, and then he is again restored, and he's on the throne again, because he's not been overcome by the powers of darkness. And that's what happens here again. Receive strength, and then he says, Depart from me, Satan, for this one God only will I worship, who is the God of glory. Notice how often they mention glory here. Now it's Satan's turn to cry. Now he begins to shake. Well, he was shaking already with rage and out of control. But now he has nothing to offer, and he trembles, and the earth shook, as we mentioned the last time. The Greeks call him Gaiochos, the earth shaker. And Moses received strength and called upon God, saying he receives, receives more strength. He's building up, you see. In the name of the only begotten, depart hence Satan. So he casts out Satan in the name of the Son. And Satan cried with a loud voice, with weeping, wailing, and gnashing of teeth, and departed hence even from the presence of Moses. Yeah, a tragic figure. He cannot take a subordinate role. Remember, he wants to be the first one and so forth. And so we have to move on here, yes? Um, the first time he tried to cast him out, did he do it in the name of the only begotten? No, he doesn't. He doesn't, does not mention it at any rate. Yeah, this one works at any rate. He got enough strength to, to build up again. Now, we have to move on, avoiding technicalities, but some are important. Some are important. Yeah. Now we come to the entr'acte. Verse 23 is between the acts. An entr'acte is a commentary by the, the Egyptians who call him the Harry Heb, the lectern priest, the priest who reads and recites what's here. This is the part in red ink. Black ink has been the sacred words, the sacred drama. Now we come to the red ink, which is a commentary in stage directions. Now of this thing, Moses bore record. See, Moses isn't even writing this. Moses bore record, but because of wickedness, it is not had among the children of men. See, Moses is the great communicator, and he comes through here. Well, now comes the next act. He has won, he is in victory, he has to be recognized and crowned, and is the coronation that follows the combat, and given his... Uh, that's a very interesting thing here. It's in that we get the same thing, the same basic combat, of course, the Egyptian combat were given in the Book of Abraham, with facsimiles one, two, and three. I shouldn't mention this just in passing. Number, on number one, Abraham is helpless, lying down and helpless, bound to an altar, calling for, with his last breath, he's calling for aid and the angel of the Lord comes but the voice of the Lord speaks and he is delivered in the second one is passing through the heavens he is shown the heavens that's figure two this is a very important one but in the third one then figure three he is on the cross it is Abraham sitting on the throne he's the one who should because he is overcome on the altar well what's he doing on the altar why shouldn't the king be there ah the king always chose a substitute instead a substitute who had to be a foreigner a noble and either blonde or redhead 
So Abraham was chosen for it, and so he, he gets to sit on the throne, too. Well, that's Egyptian custom, but we get, get it right here. This is the famous year drama. It, it first came out with the so-called Cambridge School, just in 19, since 1930, become known. I remember when I was in graduate school, they would throw you out the door if you mentioned this, but it's accepted by everyone now. Well, anyway, uh, when Satan departed, the presence of Moses lifted up his eyes unto heaven again. He's filled with the Holy Ghost. Now he's carried up. In the book of Abraham and in the Abraham story, Abraham is carried up to heaven again by the Holy Ghost and sees God on his throne and talks with him. Which beareth record of the Father and the Son. So it's as if you were there yourself calling upon the name of God so he does behold his glory again. This is back to heaven, but it's in between now. The, the lights go up, Moses is in glory. Is this a return to heaven or is it halfway? Well, remember the mountain. It's as high as you can go, I suppose. But he sees the glory of God, but it was upon him. Then he heard a voice announcing that he is the victor and he is recognized and he is the king. Blessed art thou, Moses, for I, the Almighty, have chosen thee. He has been elected. Thou shalt be made stronger than many waters. What many waters was Moses stronger than? Remember when they passed through the Dead Sea, uh, the Red Sea. Yes, they passed through the Red Sea, the waters of death. And also the waters of Mara. They were starving. They were dying of thirst in the wilderness. They were... And Moses struck the rock, remember, with his staff, and the waters of Mara, the waters of complaint, bitterness. Uh, because they'd been complaining, they had, they'd been sinning, that's why they were dying of thirst. The waters gushed forth and saved them. So Moses is stronger than many waters. Notice he raises his staff. The Lord says, raise your staff, and the waters of the Red Sea will return. The wind blows, the sea comes up, and it swamps the, the chariots of, the, of Pharaoh. The, uh, and the same thing happens. Again, he strikes the rock with his staff, and then... Joshua does the very same thing when they get to the Jordan. Moses doesn't lead them across the Jordan, but Joshua does, and it's at flood, and they can't get across. And Joshua backs up the waters. It's backed up, and when the, when the dam breaks, though, the, the stuff had piled up. The stuff had piled up out the river because it came down with a rush of dirty water, mud, sand, trees, and everything else. But again, he raised his staff. So this follows a pattern, a very distinct pattern, and, and I have listed, I've published at least 100 examples of this, this particular drama, this royal drama taking place. Well, uh, and lo, notice this, and they shall obey thy command as if thou wert God. See, Moses is going to act in the place of God on earth. He's God's representative, and he has a, the priesthood to act for God. But he, we say that divine kingship and so forth, well, this is where it's rooted. You'll act as if you're God. And then he says here, and lo, I am with thee, and I am with you. As long as I am with you, then you can act for me, because he says, even unto the end of thy days, thou shalt deliver my people. They're not Moses' people. You'll deliver my people, but it's just as if you were me. As if thou wert God, you shall deliver my people. So you're taking my place. You have proven this because of your faith. You've proven faithful, so now you're qualified for this great work. So this is the work to which he's been found, uh, being uh, called. And lo, I am with thee even to the end of thy days, thou shalt deliver my people. Even Israel my chosen. Notice he's starting up. I have chosen thee, and you shall lead Israel my chosen. Then, the... Uh, Moses receives the assignment. This is the end of that scene. We're not in heaven anymore. Well, he receives the assignment in heaven now, as he did before. Now, this is what he's supposed to do. We see what he's going to do. He's supposed to lead his people. He's supposed to lead the chosen people. He's supposed to establish a new dispensation. He's been in Egypt all this time. and has been cut off from the Lord for 400 years. And he's shown his field of labor. Now, we said before that every one of these verses is relevant, and you should ask a question about every one. Uh, do you have an assignment? Do you know what's your field of labor? Did you receive? Joseph Smith said we all received them before. Uh, what keys do we have? What indication do we have? What help do we have as to decide whether we have anything to do or not? What do we receive when we're quite young? You 
Yeah, yeah, I got mine when I was 10 years old, and then I lost it. I memorized it to her. And then, uh, because I'd lost it, I got one after I came to Provo many, many years later, you see. And they were both pretty well, and they just matched like the gloves, you know, though they were very unusual. Well, most people's are, actually, if you, if you analyze them carefully. They're formulaic, they're very formulaic. It's like priming the pump, you see. You have to get going. There's a lot of this in scripture. I mean, um, repeated lines and so forth. While the patriarch gets the spirit and the like, he, he recites certain formulas he, and concentrates on certain things, and then the ideas start to flow, the, the revelation starts to come. But don't be surprised if there are a lot of formula, a lot of repetition in uh, patriarchal, but I think there should be, because they're following the patriarchal pattern. Well, uh, so he receives his assignment, and he sees all the earth, not a particle he didn't see. Does that mean he saw every individual proton, as we said, and, and electrons so forth? No, he saw every type of particle. I'm sure it means that. He saw all the particles it was made of. He knew its construction completely. So that's just a guess, of course. And he sees all the people, and he discerned them by the Spirit of God. And their numbers were great, even numberless as the sands upon the seashore. Well, we just, uh, I just read yesterday an Egyptian text used for the first time, a thing I've never seen before, heavy. Heavy beyond measure, heavy even as the sands of the seashore. I haven't seen that one. As heavy as the sands, as many as the sands, but as heavy as the sands, that's a different one. He beheld many lands. Each land was called earth. They're separate. Of course, at that time, the world was divided into separate lands, not in contact with each other at all, separate earths. Of course, arts is the Hebrew word for all of them. And uh, the inhabitants on the face thereof. And it came to pass that Moses called upon God. And now he asked the famous epic question. Uh, in, in the epic poem, at the beginning of the poem, remember, the poet asks the muse or the Lord to tell him uh, what it's all about. Give him the whole picture, Iliad, uh, where it starts out. Tis um, stars for the own anadiction. Tis stars for the own anadi in egma kestai. Lajus kai deus quius hogarbat lej colossum and so forth. He starts out the, uh, I'm mixing it with the Odyssey here. Anyway, he almost doing this thing, things these days. Working on this Egyptian stuff gets me all mixed up. Uh, but uh, the... Uh, ex hude, there it begins. Ex hude ta prote dias de te neresanta. From what original cause and origin did all this come? Ex hude ta prote, and the very first thing of all. As to data prodigies, detainerasanta, did this, did this quarrel, did this tragedy arise? Did the whole, is the struggle of man, you see, it's, it's man. The next one's going to be Odysseus, and this one it's Achilles. How did this all begin, and why? Tistars for their own. Which god was responsible for this? And then the answer is, of course, uh, it was man's own wickedness, but dios et leia tabule. But the god, the will of God was being fulfilled. He was behind it all. So you get that, and then you get, uh, in the Aeneid, the great Latin one, is Musa mihi causas memoro, quo numen elisa, quid vidolens regina deus, tanta dira laboris insignum fidetat verum, and so forth. Musa mihi memoro, recall to my mind, muse, he's calling the holy muse, as Milton does, you see. Memoro, remember, quid numen elisa, what god was offended, what divine principle had been trespassed against that should bring all this trouble to a man so excellent as Aeneas? Why did he have to suffer? Of course, the whole thing is about the godlike Aeneas, how he has to suffer. Quid for the loins, how many, so many things. Tanta dira laboris had to go through so many pains and labors. Tot vulvera casus, uh, be cast into so many uh, terrible situations and the like, again, just like Odysseus. So you begin with this question, what's it all about and why? And our Milton is the same way. Uh, 
where, where he says, um, uh, chiefly thou spirit and so forth, and then he goes on, uh, instruct, no, or, yes, thou, thou knowest, thou from the first was present, no, but that's not the one I want, where he, where he asks the big question, he says, um, uh, the, I mean, I think it was in a second, the, um, Oh, yes. Tell me, for, nothing, for heaven hides nothing from thy view, uh, nor the vast, nor the expanse of hell. Uh, in the beginning, who in the beginning led our, our first parents to such foul revolt? See, who was it? What brought all this trouble on? They always begin with, why is there all this trouble? Why is all this work? Why do we have to go through all this? And so this is the same thing. Only Moses asked the most sweeping question of all when he says, Tell me, I pray thee, why all, why these things are so, and by what thou madest them? And he's rebuked for it. He's given a proper answer. This is the sort of question we like to talk about in elders' quorum, but we're wasting our time because he says, that's not for you now, and it won't be for quite a while. And the glory of the Lord is upon Moses, and God talked to him face to face and said to him, for my own purposes have I made these things. Here is wisdom, and it remaineth in me. Does that answer your question? And by the word of my power I created him, which is mine only begotten son, who is full of grace and truth. Then he does tell him, worlds without number and so forth, and they can't be measured to man, so there's no reason they're trying to explain or number them to you. we be wasting your time. And for my own purpose, again, by my only begotten. The first man of all have I called Adam, which is many, and that is the, re that is the meaning of the Egyptian word Adam. Uh, Rudolf Anthes has proven that to the hilt, but it does mean, uh, Adam means all that's gone before and all that comes after. Uh, the, the vast multitude, like Eve, Eve means everybody, because she is the mother of all living. Well, anyway, there are many worlds that have passed away, and there are many that now stand, but all these things are numbered, and they are mine. And then Moses says, all right, I see it now. Tell me just about this world, and, and I will be content. Uh, what the Lord tells him in verse 31 following is there is more to it than you can ever know. Take care of your sector of the front and leave the rest alone. That's all you can handle. It's a sign to you because you can handle it, and at present, it's all you can handle, and that's all for all of us. You have a particular assignment to fill it to the full, and then that will expand. But don't ask for more. Uh, don't ask to command the whole front. Uh, you may not know what's going on in your sector. May, uh, nobody else may know either. But uh, it's very important uh, not, to, uh, not to take things in hand and start giving orders where you have no business. And so he says, O oh God, tell me concerning this earth and the inhabitants thereof and also the heavens, and then thy servant will be content. He's willing to settle for just this earth, modest man. And uh, so he accepts. Now this does, notice then the Lord goes on and repeats again that this world has to be understood in its setting, in its proper perspective, in its larger picture, along with the other worlds. We've seen that again and again. We start out by putting the earth itself, see, in its perspective, which requires a much larger picture, actually. Uh, it does require uh, an awareness of Moses' own limited scope. He has to be made aware of that by being shown the big picture and also the nature of the earth and the creation and be given an idea of the plan that he's not the only one. So he settles for that. Now part of Moses, now, now we get here, verses 40, here's the end part, you see. And this is a very part, important part of Moses' assignment is to keep the record. We owe more records to Moses than anyone else. See, it's, it's uh, recognized very... And quite widely now, that the, the books of Abraham, yeah, the book of Abraham was really uh, the book of Moses, the Genesis, for example, 
the little Genesis, the leptogenesis, turns out to be a book of Abraham, was really originally a book of Abraham, that Moses has just re-edited the story of the creation we find in Moses in the Old Testament is a re-edition from an older book of Abraham's. Interesting thing, he hands it on, he puts it all together. There are going to be other, there are going to be other editions. The classic study of how these things are handed down and re-edited and, and commented as they go, as all documents are, is the Book of Mormon. We have these, this build up from many records with, with comments by, by the builders. Well, so he tells here, this is it. Uh, I will speak unto thee concerning this earth upon which thou standest. That's the formula he uses so often with, with Abraham too. Here, this is the earth that concerns you. Does that make you clear now? And you write the things I speak. These things are to be recorded because I can't talk to everybody. And I'm not going to. They can't qualify. They can't uh, abide my glory or anything. You are to become, you are to be the recorder. And he is. And this is the reason, in that day when the children of men shall esteem these things as not, and, uh, and, and uh, take many of them from the book which thou shalt write, and this is what has happened, because they're coming back now, we're going to find all sorts of things. Then he says, I will raise up another like unto thee, and they shall be had again among the children of men, as many as shall believe. But this is to be kept secret, tell us in the last verse, not given to everybody the record. Uh, it wouldn't be, be appreciated and so forth, and it's a special blessing. But Moses to hand it down, and this is the way Apocrypha and Apocalyptic are handed down. This is the real meaning of Apocrypha. It means it's a thing that's been kept under wraps, and say Apocalyptic is another form of the same word, which is kept under wraps and only revealed to those who are ready to receive it. Of course, it's the same in any subject, really. You're not going to profit by going into some class uh, that's ten years ahead of what you should be doing. You won't know what they're talking about. You have to take things as they go, and it's the same thing with the Scriptures. They're revealed to the children then when they're ready to receive them, and they're ready to believe them. These were the words. Now, here's the final comment. Notice this last verse 42 they have actually put in parentheses to show that it is in red ink. After all, our parentheses are our, parentheses are our red ink, okay, they are our rubrics. Spoke to Moses on the mount. You don't know which mount, so don't argue about that. It's a good thing, you see, not to know. And uh, among the children of men, probably way up north there. Now they're spoken unto you. This is to the prophet Joseph. He is another like unto him who is raised up. But there were others after who did the same thing. The prophets had such revelations. Show them not unto any except as believe. Even so, amen. Now we come to the, uh, the second chapter, which we skip. Uh, I'm going to, because this is repeated in Abraham, and it's in Genesis, and it's in the temple too. It's the creation story. We've discussed it in this thing called uh, Before Adam, and uh, you can, it's, this is on reserve, there are numbers of copies on this reserve, and you can look it over there and uh, see another approach to the creation thing. Though there's some questions that have been asked by people here we should uh, come into, and that come, they come in the, next, in the next chapter. Chapter 3, where are we dealing with the creation of man, with primitive man, and so forth. Uh, but it starts out, you notice, the fourth verse that follows. Well, notice... Uh, I have underlined in red in my book here all the passages that are not found in the Bible. And, of course, this is a very substantial addition to the biblical account. See that? And in this one, it says, all the things which I have made these things. And now I say unto thee that, that these are the generations of the heavens, uh, the heavens in the Bible, heaven here, and of the earth when they were created. That's very interesting because in the Bible it says of the heavens, and here it says of heaven and earth because every earth has its heaven. And when they were created, in the day that I, the Lord God, made the heaven and the earth. So notice this, the generations of the heavens and earth in the day when he made it. Now the fourth 
the fourth book, uh, the fifth book of Genesis starts out with saying, these are the generations of Adam in the day when the Lord created him. See, that's at a different level. That's another creation. That's another story. We get to that later. It doesn't say created him. It says called him apart, blessed him, gave him a name. We get to that later, or next time, in fact. But the, uh, these are the generations of heaven. Notice, generation, an organic process, generates and begets. We're dealing with stages and episodes. We've mentioned this before and before. One generation leads to the next. The whole comes in distinct and discrete acts. The whole thing. You don't get it all, as, Moses, as the Lord told Moses. But this deals the generations of this earth. Notice the generations of heaven and of earth. The generation, that is the organic process, the stages or episodes, the generations by which it comes. And this whole scene, this whole chapter, now this is the most baffling thing about the creation story, is because it distinctly tells us about two creations. Genesis does too. Uh, it had not yet rained upon the earth and so forth, a spiritual creation and the like. What are we going to do about that? Well, here we see again, and this shouldn't bother us at all, you see, the whole thing is on a different level from the generations of Adam, the Tadolos Adam, which begins which in chapter 5. We don't get to them until chapter 5. So it's not the idea of just one act, one creation, everything all at once. It all happens in one flash, instantaneously and simultaneously. Not at all. It's spread out all over the place. So this solves... Well, now, there are just some questions, as we notice, of which I... For I, the Lord God, created all these things of which I have spoken in chapter 2, spiritually, before the other. So that is another level. But this seven has bothered lots of people, this, this first flesh. Uh, made him of the dust of the ground, so he's of this earth, the dust of the ground, the same elements that every other plant's made of, you see. Uh, and the breath of life in his nostrils, and man became a living soul. The first flesh upon the earth, the first man also, nevertheless all things were before created, but spiritually they were created and made according to my word. Now, uh, this is the first complete union, you see, between the spirit and the earth here. But when you look up in the big lexicon, the Hebrew lexicon, as to what the word flesh means, the first flesh, as it says in the Bible, basar means this, these are the, the definitions in order. Its primary meaning means flesh opposite to bone, as opposed to bone. A flesh can only belong to an animal which also has bones. We never refer uh, to the flesh of micro, of, of micro, uh, not I guess they're microcosms, of microorganisms. Uh, we don't think of them as flesh, and we don't call them flesh. <laughs> well, they're made of the same stuff the rest of us are. But as it says, flesh has to be an animal that has bones, at least. It's the first one. Uh, and then it says, in the bodies of man and beast, Genesis 2.21. Hence, it means the body as opposed to nefesh, the spirit. Nefesh means breath. It means the breath of life. In the nefesh, is the combined. As we say, the spirit and body are the soul of man. They combine and make the soul, and that's the way it goes. So, but the flesh part of it is the part that's opposed to the nefesh, but it's the human flesh again. And the second meaning is the figurative, meaning, quote, first, a human being. Basar is specifically a human being. The first flesh means the first human being. A mortal. Uh, second Chronicles 32, 8 and so forth. Or the human arm, the arm of flesh. Therefore, it's a word for being mortal or meet the weakness of the flesh. The, fle the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak and so forth. And... The second meaning, referring to all mankind, mankind in general. So he was the first of mankind. See, these are the meanings of Basar, and you can't be dogmatic and say uh, he's the first uh, living cell on Earth or something like that. I suppose, would you call the first, the, the first monocellular organism a flesh, or would there be such a thing? Well, anyway, uh, 
and for all living creatures, men and animals, oh, then it can mean blood relation, right? flesh and blood and so forth. So, but Moses here in this verse gives us the definition of flesh in which sense it's to be used. He says it, it is the first flesh uh, upon the earth, the first man also. So by when I say we mean the first flesh, we mean the first man. That's what we mean by first flesh. First flesh, first man. We mean it in that sense. Well, uh, now, what light does the Pearl of Great Price throw on primitive man? Here we have a, a recent, very recent, November 85, with this, uh, with this hologram picture of the skull of the, uh, this little town child, they call it now, it's supposed to be two, year, two million years old and so forth. And uh, it has some nice diagrams, and here's one that unfolds the development of skeletons and the like, supposedly. They put the skeletons together in this order. This is talked about in this before Adam's thing. I brought it up pretty well today. But it says, stepping room, stepping on the road to humanity. Now, the whole question that comes up is, namely and to wit, when does he step across the line that makes him a man? Only when he steps across that line can he be called an Adam or human. And this is the subject of the, of the uh, big conference in 1979 at Nairobi, when all the paleontologists in the world got together and thought about the question, when can you say it's a man, when can you say it isn't? There dozens of different specimens running around now that look like humans, but we know they aren't. When does, is he starting to be a man? I think there's a comment on it here, yes. About the Nairobi conference, yes. <laughs> Last September, 150 of the world's leading paleontologists met at the 8th Pan-African Congress of Prehistory and Quaternary Studies in Nairobi. The main issue discussed was what is the definition of homo? <coughs> or, as you were speaking in Hebrew or something else, what is the definition of Adam? Because we're ha-adam, it's the regular Hebrew word today for man, it's the only one used. Adam and Enosh. Uh, what is the definition of homo? How do you know a true man when you see him? Well, he looks like a man. Again, there are creatures in the zoo that look like men. Then we're quoting one of them. In recent years, the old concept of a single, steadily evolving lineage from ape to man has been completely replaced by at least three, possibly more different forms of early man evolving simultaneously in Africa. Which one is the true man? Quite recently, a new development has come in there, and it's a, it's a very important one, too. Um, the point is, though, he's, he's there all of a sudden, by definition. You don't go gradually into like the argument. Some people say the world is round. Some people say the world is flat. The truth must lie somewhere in between. You <laughs> You're not being scientific or playing safe when you say that, or the same way here. You didn't gradually become a man. You were either one or you weren't. This is the point. And this is brought out very interesting by the studies being made now with the primates and speech. Very intense, very exhaustive. Uh, the works like people like Scheller and George Scheller and, and Jane, uh, uh, what's her name? The, the, the Gorilla Girl, again, uh, Jane Goodall, Jane Goodall, yes. Uh, but they didn't do the language so much, but that, that, the English people are really taken with that, uh, because Darwin started that. Now, it's an interesting thing. There's a good book by, Eccles, by Popper and Eccles on this. Uh, uh, Darwin didn't base his, his arguments all the last part of his life. He gave up the bone structure and that sort of thing, because they're so much alike anyway. But it was on psychology, on intelligence and speech. This was the test. Of, of humanity, and this this proved the gradual evolution of human thought, of the human being in the patterns of thought that he would trace out in animals. As you get to higher and higher species, you see, then you get uh, mental processes <coughs> nearer and nearer to ours. Well, uh, this a recent study of Popper Nichols 
they bring it all together, and it just isn't so. Others are commenting on that. All that has done was to deepen the gulf, as it had never been expected before, because there is a total and absolute gulf. There, in, there are two types of language. One is specificity, and then the other is an idea. And between the, the language of ideas, uh, what do they call it? They have a special name for it. Uh, there's nothing of that. Well, let's see. I brought along a, a, an article, Xerox, from, from John Eccles. Sir John Eccles is the great authority on the brain. He got the Nobel Prize for his work on the brain. And uh, he's been working with these animal brains all his days, and he's, he reaches this conclusion. Yes, we talk about the baby practices language and gradually works itself, especially through language, into an amazing world it finds itself in. But there are two kinds. Uh, the baby's language, at least to start with, is pragmatic. That is, it learns to ask for desirables. Food and comfort, being taken for a walk and all of those things, which apes can ask for too. But soon the baby starts to ask different kind of questions, such as what's going on outside, why are they doing that, and what is this for? That makes the difference between pragmatic language and mathetic language. That's the word he invented, I'm trying to think of. And this is Eccles. Incidentally, two years ago, he spent quite some time on the campus here, John Eccles, and, and a number of our people are, are corresponding with him. Uh, uh, Curtis, Curtis Wright has uh, kept up quite a lively correspondence with, with Eccles on this subject. What's going on outside? Why are they doing that? That makes the difference between pragmatic language and mathetic language. Mathetic language is our means of finding our way into the world, of recognizing our world, and of realizing the tremendous experience of becoming a cultured human being. A chimpanzee never does that at all. And this surprises me, because I always thought they were getting closer and closer together, but they're not, really. All the teaching of language to chimpanzees shows more clearly than anything else is that chimpanzees miss altogether the human quality of mathetic language. They can use language only for desirable. Then I want to mention those studies of copper on this, the three world of copper. So this is another gap, and it's, it's a, just emerged in the last two or three years. It's quite recently. They thought they were on the track, and it led them right in the wrong direction. They're, this is one thing in which we are quite unique as well. But the point is, you are, you're there or you're not there. You either have a man or you don't have a man. You don't have in-betweens <coughs> of all kinds. And the gulf has, has deepened. Well, now, how many atoms are there? You can think of them. I've got ten here. There was a council in heaven, but before the council, Adam was on hand because he was summoned to the council, you see. Uh, Jehovah, Michael, their attention is called and their <coughs> program is suggested to them by Elohim. And Elohim, of course, is the council of God. You learn in the book of Abraham, of course, that's what the word means, Elohim. It's plural. You can't get away from it. It's taken as that. But uh, and that's the way it's referred to throughout the book of Abraham. Well, so before the council, there was Adam there. We don't know how long he's been there. A very long time, you can be sure, but they're not measuring time our way. The second Adam is when he joins the council, and we've seen a lot about that. The council in heaven in which they plan the, the earth, its plan, its purpose, and so forth. And Adam, or Michael, he's not Adam yet, is very active in that. Then, in the meantime, <coughs> then he goes down as a building inspector. He visits the earth from time to time to see how it's going. He's on the building committee. He's in charge. Remember, he and Jehovah. <clears throat> they go down, they visit the earth from time to time, come back and report. And this, according to some of the early church fathers, where he gets his name Adamant from Adamantinos. <coughs> which means, which can't, Adamantine means diamond. The word diamond comes from the name Adam. You see, diamond. Uh, uh, Adamantinos. It's from Adamantinos. Damao is to break, to crush, to destroy, and so forth. Adamanto, that's the alpha privative, means it cannot be destroyed. It negates it, you see. Adam means the thing that, the one, the indestructible, Adam. 
which kind of, it's the same word as our word dam and build a dam, it's to stamp down and so forth. Damno, the word is damno in Greek as a matter of fact, uh, means to injure in any way or to hold on. That can't be done to Adam in his original. And they say when he visited the earth during its, uh, uh, during its construction, it was not a safe place to be. You had to be Adamantinus, you'd never get away from it. There were uh, tremendous temperatures, whirling dust storms and all the rest, it was in, in formation. So there's the Adamantinus, the indestructible building inspector. And then he comes down, changes his name, personality, and everything else, wipes out everything, and becomes as a little child and receives a new name. He's now Adam. Um, he's now man. He's now on this earth. And of course, Adam means red earth, and it means all those other things. We have a lot of names for Adam. We may mention them later on. And this is the one of the most important periods of all. This is the one that accounts for that that time when he was a primitive and all that. But we go on here for now. And then he wakes again. After that, he falls into a deep sleep. Remember, he, he wakes from a sleep and is blanked out like a little child. And then he goes to sleep again and wakes up and marries Eve under the covenant. Now, that's number five. That's before they enter Garden of Eden. Next phase, he enters the Garden of Eden and is a mortal being. He's in paradise now. And he's a food gatherer, but he's, he hasn't fallen. He's a spiritual being. He would live forever. And he, uh, uh, of every tree of the garden, I may freely eat and so forth. We cannot conceive of what it was like there in Eden, except it was infinitely delightful. And he could have gone for, uh, on forever without being boring. But he does leave Eden and ends up in a totally different world. He's outcast, just like Moses in the beginning here. He's flat. There's very dramatic early Christian Jewish accounts, the earliest, about how how Adam, after he was cast out of the garden, found himself desperate. He didn't think the sun would ever rise again. He'd sinned, he'd cast out. He was in a dark and dreary world. And he, as I say, he thought the sun would never rise again, and he despaired of, of ever being forgiven or of ever living. We were told when he was cast out of Eden, his life became shorter, and he became smaller in stature and everything else. Too. And uh, then, so he's another one, but he doesn't stay that way. Uh, because he's been following the rules, an angel comes to visit him. They come to visit him, not angel, but angels. We're told three men in the literature throughout come and start instructing him. The Lord himself visits him again and tells him. He hears the voice of the Lord, but the angels visit him and bring books and instructions and tell him what he's to do to get back into the presence of God. He now enters the covenant and becomes one of the, uh, of the fold. He becomes one who has received, is receiving instructions and is on the way back to salvation. A very different state from what he was before he received that. And of course, in receiving the covenants and receiving the signs and tokens from the angels, he receives a new name, too. This is an important thing. So that's H. And then he dies, of course. And according to all accounts, like the, the very famous harrowing of hell, the earliest Christian account we have of what happens after, he goes down and preaches to the spirits in prison, his, his children who he's going to deliver. Now, that just doesn't go back to the, the harrowing of hell in the fifth century, which became the standard mystery drama of the Middle Ages, the, you know, the dramatized on a stage in front of the cathedral at Easter time, when the Lord goes down, represents going down, and he delivers the children of Adam who are being held below. But, but it's Adam who leaves out the prayed of his children. But my land, way back in the, uh, in the uh, I mentioned it before, the uh, Apocalypse of Abraham and the Testament of Abraham, the same thing. When uh, Abraham reaches the other side, the first thing he does is look up Michael. And he says, look, we, I, he has a great feeling for the human race. You know, he wants to save all men. He, do, he doesn't want these people to be lost. He says, I don't want anyone to be lost. I can't bear thinking about it. So he and Michael get together, and they go to Elohim and petition him 
for permission to establish a system of work or ordinances by which all these fallen people may be redeemed. And then he leads it. So that's very old, in other words. That goes back to the first, second century at least. Well, uh, but then the most interesting is these verses 19 and 20. People that ask about primitive man and so forth. Um, remember, it's timeless. Remember, as we're told in, in the 5 and 3, Abraham 5 and 3 here, the, uh, you, that until he left the garden, yes, and thus were their decisions at the time they would counsel among themselves. Wait, that's not it. Uh, 5 and 3, I'm always getting the wrong one. I certainly am. 5 and 13. Yeah, here it is. Tree of knowledge for the time. Now I, Abraham, said it was after the manner of the Lord's time, which is after the time of Caleb. For as yet, he's talking about the time that they were cast out of the garden. Says, for as yet the gods had not appointed unto Adam his reckoning. And it was not reckoning time, so you're wasting time talking about years and, and periods here. That's a very important state <coughs> of things. This gives us a little vignette on another type of world. Out of the ground the Lord formed every beast of the field. Now the beasts are formed, and Adam was formed out of the ground too. He's the same substance as they are, and every fowl of the air. And he's commanded they should come to Adam. Now during this period, Adam lives on a genial uh, level with the animals. He gets along famously with them to see what he would call them. And they were also living souls. They were also living souls. They didn't speak his language, but they're in his community. Well, you can exchange. Remember, on the pragmatic level, yes, you can exchange signals with animals very well. For I, God, breathed into them the breath of life and commanded that whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that should be the name thereof. Notice, this is a, a program of awareness, of getting acquainted. Adam gets acquainted with all the other creatures in the world because it's a multiple-use world we're living on, and they have a right to it as much as anybody else, as we read in the and Jonas. So he gives names. Levi Strauss's great work shows how that the, uh, the naming and classifying of animals uh, reaches a point of of sophistication among the so-called primitives, far excelling that that uh, any anthropologist or even biologist ever dreamed up. They really know the animals they're talking about, and they know how to classify them. You must read Claude Lévi-Strauss's great work on that. Now, uh, and then gave names. But as for Adam, there was not found a helpmeet for him. Well, what he's doing alone, he has no helpmeet. The word helpmeet is a very important one. Oh, we have a minute for it. It's the same as meat. Uh, meat. It's spelled various ways. Help meat is the same word as mate. It's the same word as match. Two things are alike. They're alike. It means equal. Is what it means. Uh, act match. See, when you have a game, you don't have a match unless the two sides are are equal. It's supposed to be equal. You're going to find out. And the person who is on the team with you is a mate. And when you come together, you have a meet. See, all these words are together. Uh, you, you and your mates come together for a meet, to have, for a match, but it's always with equals. It's always working together and cooperating with it. And uh, this particular uh, word is very interesting because we, uh, it's, it's still kept here in its old English form as help me, which is quite right. But what's he doing all this time then? Remember, he's a little child. According to the Hebrew tradition, which is very early and very widely testified, and his wife, he had a wife at this time, and she was Lilith. She represents promiscuity. Uh, she didn't like Adam. She, she did everything she could to keep him from entering into the covenant and marrying in the covenant. He wasn't around then, you see. But good old Lilith, her name, of course, means right. Lila, Lilith, Lilith. Uh, 
Way back in, in the uh, alphabet of Rabbi Akiba, very early writing we told about her, she uh, was his mate, but she stands for everything that's promiscuous. She doesn't want to get married, but she wants to play around. She, that's Lilith. Well, Adam was living in an animal state uh, and innocence. He becomes a little child. I guess he would be a pushover for Lilith. But she's a sinister character uh, because uh, she's irresponsible. She's married to him. She has children. She doesn't want to be responsible for them or anything like that. And she's regarded as the woman who tries to do everything she can to prevent marriage, to prevent childbirth, and to kill babies in their cribs. That's Lilith. All sorts of the earliest charms we have from Babylon and elsewhere against Lilith to keep her from her uh, from her uh, shenanigans and so forth. But uh, she's a, a rather important figure. She represents the sort of uh, sexual license we have in the world today. Uh, the anything goes, just have fun, but don't feel under any obligations. And whatever you do, don't enter into any covenants because that will bind you. And she does everything she can, I say, to frustrate marriage and to keep Adam, and to keep Adam from it. She, uh, <clears throat> she goes to the Red Sea and so forth. Well, there are all sorts of stories told about her uh, and, uh, and her sons and uh, her desire to. She represents the old matriarchy, too, a sinister figure. But this, this gap, you know, because he hasn't been married yet, and then here's another deep sleep. See, he woke from a deep sleep in the first place when he woke up being Adam after being Michael, and now he goes into another deep sleep and he wakes up and he finds Eve there, and now it's time for him to be properly married. Um, this life ends with another sleep. Notice it says a deep sleep, a passage, and he marries Eve in the covenant, verse 22 following. And uh, notice they're very close, as close as you can get here. This uh, cleaving, and the rib is uh, the, um, is used, well, the, the urca, the silica. The uh, yorka is the regular word means. Rib is the expression for anything as close to you as a thing can possibly be. Just close. What can get closer to your side than your rib, in other words, you see? Your rib is your side. You might be able to get along without it, but that's as close about as, as you can get to a person is the rib. To, and of my rib, I say it is a, it is a, a usage. Uh, the metaphor is used in language. As close as my rib and uh, as intimate, it means bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, and so forth. As intimate as you can be. And now we come to the fourth chapter, time is up now, but the, uh, where we have the fall and the, uh, the fall and the problem of evil. It didn't take us too long here. Again, this whole thing, you notice, how are we going to explain the fall and the, and, the, and the problem of evil? Well, of course, you begin with Satan. He's the one that loused it all up. He's the one that's responsible. So naturally, we begin with an account of how he got started. So we're back in the council in heaven again. Uh, that Satan who I commanded, well, the Lord is explaining it to him. We don't dramatize it again, but here it is, and it's, it's uh, going to be dramatized again in... But you'll find it, you must look up Revelations 12, uh, 3 and 4, and 7. Uh, Revelation? The only re re uh, references we have to counsel in the fall of Satan, his rebel, and his casting out of heaven, is in the New Testament, in Revelations, though there are many accounts in the apocryphal writings, especially that the Coptic writing called the Abitum. The um, uh, 3, 4, and 7. Uh, 12, 3, 4, and 7. There's the account of the fall from heaven. And you'll find it in Luke uh, 17 to 10. 10, 17 to 20. In Luke. Now, those are the only mentions you find in the Bible. And uh, they can stand analyzing, too. There's some very interesting things about it.